The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Support for this show comes from best-selling author and master energy healer, Carol Tuttle, and Dressing Your Truth, the effortless makeover program that unveils true, beautiful you to the world. Experience your life-changing transformation at DressingYourTruth.com. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is Essential Conversations. My guest today is Vidyamala Birch. She's an ordained Buddhist priest and author of Living Well with Pain and Illness, an international bestseller translated into 12 different languages, and also the author of Mindfulness for Health, which she co-authored with Danny Penman. An interview with Vidyamala Birch appears in the September-October issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Vidyamala, welcome to Essential Conversations. Thank you very much. Delightful to be here with you. You know, I'm looking at the book Living Well with Pain and Illness, and you start out with a reference to a book that was back in the 70s quite popular, but one that maybe people don't know a lot about. So what I'd like you to do is give us some background, what brought you to this work. You suffered and continue to suffer with chronic pain. You had paralysis and you came across, and you'll have to tell us how, Stephen Levine's book, Who Dies? An Investigation of Conscious Living and Conscious Dying. What was going on in your life back then and how did this book speak to you? Yes, well, that was very interesting. I came across that book in a bookshop in London. I still remember it, a bookshop called Jambala. And I pulled the book off the shelf and was flicking through it. And the thing I remember, that the core message that I remember was the idea of needing to learn to turn towards your difficulties rather than running away from your difficulties. And at that point, I'd had chronic pain probably for 15 years, something like that. And I'd meditated for many years, maybe five years or so. And I had this kind of thunderbolt moment of realizing very deeply that I'd up till that point been using meditation and mind training to try to escape my pain, to run away from my pain, to suppress my pain, to create a kind of parallel universe with my mind. And I read that book and I thought, oh my God, I've missed the point. I need to learn to work with my pain rather than to treat my pain as the enemy and to try to beat and sort of overcome my pain. I needed to learn to, in a way, befriend my pain and completely transform my relationship with my pain. So that was what I got from reading that book at that time. It was quite a seminal moment in my life. When you say transform your relationship with your pain or embrace your pain, is this sort of a radical acceptance of, well, that's my situation, there's nothing I can do about it, that kind of surrender experience, or more of a mindful observation of the ever-shifting nature of your suffering? Yes, it's more the, the latter. I think the word acceptance is quite an interesting word. 
people can think it means a kind of passive resignation, a sort of, oh, well, you know, this is my lot, I've got to put up with it. But acceptance actually comes from the Latin word capiri, which means to take hold of. So it's actually quite an active quality where you're moving towards something. And what I've found with mindfulness training, which has completely transformed my life and my relationship with my own disability and really quite severe, constant pain, is that by learning to turn towards it and get into relationship with it, then I really know it. I know what my experience is in this moment. So, for example, right now, my back pain's really quite bad. It's at the end of a working day for me. What I would have used to do is I'd just try to block it out, which would create a lot of tension. What I do now is I turn towards it. Here it is. I've got the pain. I'm talking to you. The pain is part of my experience right now, and talking to you is part of my experience. There isn't a conflict because I've got a sense of wholeness. You know, I can be very engaged with you and also acknowledge the pain that's there. But most importantly, when you turn towards your pain and be it physical or emotional, you can then divide it into two components that I call primary and secondary suffering in my book. So for the case of my back pain right now, the primary suffering is the unpleasant sensations in my lower back. It's really very simple. It's unpleasant sensations in my lower back. The secondary suffering is all the other things that we add when we fight those unpleasant sensations. So, for example, if I was really resisting it and blocking it and fighting it right now, I may well have quite a lot of anxiety, thinking, oh my God, I'm talking on this radio show, I've got all this pain, I can't cope, it's too much. I'd have a lot of secondary physical tension. Because as soon as you fight and you resist something unpleasant, you breath hold, you hold your breath. Mm. And you've got pain plus breath holding, which means more tension, more pain, more breath holding. So I'd just be in a little bit of a pickle, frankly. But uh, by being able to just sit here with the pain, I've got the unpleasant sensations in my lower back and that's it. I don't have any of those secondary things. And what I've learned through my own experience and the, the many, many people that I've taught is it's the secondary suffering that really ruins our life. It's the catastrophizing, the depression, the anxiety, the secondary tension. That's what really makes your life unbearable. It's not the basic unpleasant sensations. They're unpleasant. They're horrible. But they're never as bad as the whole package when you add unpleasant plus resistance plus fighting plus lots of mental states of um, despair, anxiety, and so on. And that leads to the second point that you mentioned in your question, that by turning towards your experience as it is, you can then see into its nature. And the nature of my back pain right now is that it's a flow of unpleasant sensations. It's never the same one moment to the next. So you begin to see directly into the nature of human experience and that's that everything's changing. And that a lot of our distress in life is because we kind of make things concrete in our minds and then we fight with them. So let me explore this a little bit more with you, because I think it's very important that people get, number one, both of the points that you're making, but the relationship between the two of them. So this unnecessary suffering that's caused by resisting your pain causes additional physical pain. Definitely. Uh, it causes additional physical pain because you've got tension. So if you've got discomfort and then you've got tension, as well as the discomfort, you're going to have more pain. And that's going to show up as breath holding. Is that fair? Well, everyone holds their breath when they're resisting something. And as soon as you hold your breath, you've got freezing in the body. You've got contraction in the body. So then you've got your basic unpleasant sensations plus contraction, which equals more tension. And then you contract against the additional tension and you get even more tension. And you can end up living in a very tense way. And you don't need to. If you can just learn to see into the or to move towards with kindness the unpleasant sensations and just let them be as they flow through the moments, then your experience can be very radically transformed. 
So in my own experience, and I don't live with chronic pain, but in my own experience, when I notice that I'm doing breath holding and I notice, and it's not just even the breath holding, though that may be the trigger. I'm not sure what you'd say about that. But it's not just it's breath holding. And then there's this additional tension that is added to my body. And I'm no longer functioning, even within the limits of whatever it is I'm, I'm suffering at the moment. If someone's listening now, is there a way for them to body check, to look at their breath and look at their where they're holding and say, oh, wait, I can release this? Yes. OK, good. So I'll just lead a very short little exercise to help with that. Because in a way, we just know our habits, don't we? We don't know what we don't know, as it were. So if you've got very habitual tension, you'll just think that's normal. So the first thing is see if you can drop your awareness right down into your bottom sitting on the chair. If you're sitting on a chair and if you're standing, drop your awareness right down into your feet and feel the contact between your bottom and the chair or your feet and the floor and see if you can drop right down inside those sensations. And then see if you can have a sense of giving your body up to gravity. So we've got this force, this extraordinary invisible force all around us that we call gravity, which is always drawing us down towards the floor. As soon as you've got breath holding, you've got resisting against gravity as well. So see if you can have a sense of dropping your body into gravity. And now see if you can let your belly be soft, let your tummy be soft. And allow there to be a very gentle swelling of the tummy on the in-breath. When I say tummy, I mean the soft front of the body between the ribs and the pelvis. So the belly, the abdomen. Swelling on the in-breath, subsiding on the out-breath. Swelling on the in-breath, subsiding on the out-breath. Check that your jaw is soft. Check that you're not clenching your teeth. Let your tongue be soft in your mouth. And you might even allow your jaw to hang a bit as if you're yawning. And that always releases off the breath. Check that your hands are soft, that you haven't got tight fists. And see what's happening in the back of your body. See if you can notice any movements and sensations of breathing in the back of your body. There's a lot that goes on in the back of the body. So there's the back of the ribs, expanding on the in-breath, retracting on the out-breath. There's the back of the lungs, filling on the in-breath, subsiding on the out-breath. And see if you can breathe into your lower back. There's ligaments that attach from the big central diaphragm that's between the abdomen and the chest. We've got this big muscle that moves with the breath when we breathe. And there's ligaments that attach right down to the inside of the lower lumbar vertebrae. So every time we allow the diaphragm to move freely, there's a, a very subtle movement in the lower back. It might, you might experience a, a, a slight change of the angle. You might experience the lower back broadening a little bit on the in-breath, subsiding on the out-breath. Let's all just breathe into the lower back for a minute. Check that we're still giving our weight to gravity. We're resting down onto the chair, onto the floor. Soft jaw, soft belly. Can you feel that? Yes, I can. I can feel the shift. And you see, you can't follow those instructions and be breath holding at the same time. So it's very, very simple. So then from this place, we can look at the suffering and you see that it's in constant flux, what you call the secondary aspect of it. It's the primary aspect of basic sensation. Right. Yeah. That, sorry, got that backwards. Yeah. So, so you're noticing the primary and it's in constant flux. When someone realizes that, how does that help them live with the pain more effectively? This is a very profound point where you realize that 
even this word pain, we have this word pain that sounds like a thing, like a noun. And you realize that really that's just a label for something that's flowing, that's fluid. And you can live with something that's fluid and flowing, but it's hard to live with something that's fixed and static and sort of like a, like a block in your body. And you realize, one of the little phrases I have is that the present moment is always bearable. And you realize that it's only this moment that you experience directly. Past moment's gone, a future moment hasn't arrived yet. So I've got this moment of pain and this moment of pain and this moment of pain. And it's never exactly the same one moment to the next. So it's the idea of future moments of pain that we get tortured by, not the experience of present moments of pain. But the present moment is bearable and we only experience pain one moment at a time. And that can change your life. So this has a lot of resonance, and, and this is part of your own spiritual growth, your own spiritual work, a lot of resonance with Buddhism. Which came first for you, this work with breath, or you, you came to Buddhism first and then you discovered it? Very interesting question. Life is so curious, isn't it? So fascinating. So I, was, I entered my spine when I was 16. I was in New Zealand, very fit and sporty, very active, took my body for granted, you know, loved being in my body and completely took it for granted. Had a lifting accident and one of my vertebrae fractured. So I had a body cast for a while and tried to manage it conservatively. Nothing worked. Had a fusion operation at the beginning of my 17th year. That wasn't successful. Had further kind of salvage operation six months later. So by the time I was 18, my back was already very damaged. Uh, fast forward 10 years, well nearly 10 years when I was 25, when I found myself in hospital in an intensive care ward. I'd had lots of complications, paralyzed bladder. I won't go into details, but it was a very dark time for me. And I really thought I was not going to get through the night. I thought I was going to go completely crazy with the pain. So I had these two voices in my head, and one voice was saying, I can't get through till the morning. And the other voice was saying, but you have to. But I can't. You have to. But I can't. You have to. So I had this, this battle going on. And then at a certain point, out of really indescribable intensity, a third voice came in that said very simply, you don't have to get through till the morning, you just have to get through this moment. You don't have to get through till the morning, you just have to get through this moment. And my experience changed. It softened, I relaxed, and I thought, yes, I can do this, I can do this, this moment, I can do this, I can do this, I can do this. I got through till the morning, and I knew that something really remarkable had come into my consciousness, that it completely changed my outlook on life. What is the future? What is time? What is space? And I knew very, very directly that you only experience life one moment at a time. So that awoke a tremendous curiosity in me about the nature of the mind, spirituality, and so on. So I started reading those books. And then I was um, visited by the hospital chaplain maybe a week later. Very, very lovely man. I wasn't religious at all at this time. And he did a visualization with me where he got me to remember a time and a place where I'd been happy. I took my mind back to the southern Alps of New Zealand where I'd done a lot of mountaineering and been ecstatic as a teenager. And then he brought me back to the hospital bed. Same girl, same hospital bed. Maybe it took 10 minutes, I don't know. And I felt profoundly changed simply by what I'd done with my mind. So I thought, wow, I've got a mind. I hadn't really even thought that I had a mind up till that point. But I thought, I have awareness. I can change how I experience this moment by what I do with my mind. So that also awoke this enormous curiosity in me. Now, this was in the mid-80s in New Zealand, and I didn't know anybody that meditated. 
didn't know anybody that was Buddhist, didn't know anybody that followed a spiritual path other than Christianity. So I was pretty on my own, but I read loads and loads of books, got tapes out of the library. And after about a year, a friend said he was going on a yoga weekend that I want to go. So I said, oh yeah, I'll try that. So I went on a yoga weekend, found it very, very helpful. Followed that path for a while, but it didn't really work very well with my spinal injuries. I wasn't really getting the right kind of instruction for how to do yoga when you've got quite a severe disability. And then about a year later, someone said, I'm going on a Buddhist weekend retreat, do you want to come? So always game. I said, oh yeah, I'll come. Went on this Buddhist weekend retreat in Auckland in 1987, and that's when I clicked. So it was hearing the teachings, but it was also meeting people who had been practicing Buddhism for many years. And they had a quality that I found utterly captivating. They were very human, very real, very ordinary, nothing special, and present. So there was a quality of being very present and very kind. And I thought, wow, I so want to be like that when I grow up. You know, when you when you see something embodied, you think, oh, God, that's so amazing. So I started following the Buddhist path then, followed it very intensively. And then about three years later, I moved from New Zealand to the UK, where I still live, to move into a residential Buddhist retreat center for women. And I stayed there for five years, really deepening my training in Buddhism. Got ordained into the Chiratna Buddhist order. And then about five years after that, I felt ready in myself to see if I could offer everything I'd learned through my own life journey to other people who live with pain and illness. So that was the beginning of Breathworks, which is the organization that I founded. And that was way back in 2001. And then since then, I've been developing a teacher training program, writing books and so on. If I were writing a quick biography of of you from what you've been telling me, your spiritual practice was your, I mean, your physical trauma that you were going through. You didn't have Buddhism to help you while you were you know, in the hospital. It was the pain itself. It was some, say, a revelation or a self-realization or something about the nature of you only have to get through this moment. And the awakening that you had really came independent of any system. And then you found Buddhism as a way maybe to deepen, maybe to help you with a practice that would deepen your understanding and, and then bring it to the world. But what you bring to the world now, if I'm on track, in a sense, goes right back to where you started. You're not asking people to become Buddhists. You're asking them to work with their bodies, to work with their breath, to work with the reality in which they find themselves. And this is is really fascinating. To what extent do you think that Buddhism is still an active part of your teaching? So I had that experience that completely changed my life. I always say that night in hospital was the axis upon which my life has turned, completely independent of any spiritual path. And then Buddhism has helped me make sense of that experience because Buddhism describes that experience. Buddhism says, in a way, life is only one moment at a time, and we suffer because we react to our experience, putting it very, very simply. In Breathworks, it's a secular program, but Buddhism is completely implicit. It's all based on Buddhism, but it's a secular program because I wanted to be very accessible to people. And then I also do a lot of Buddhist teaching as well. But yeah, it's very interesting. I didn't go to Buddhism with some vague idea that I wanted to learn something. It was more that I had such an intense experience in my own life that an awakening, an insight, whatever you want to call it, completely changed my life. And then came across Buddhism and I thought, oh, this is describing my experience. How amazing. So, of course, I've, it's been very easy for me to have a lot of faith and confidence in the teachings. Mm. Reality <laughs> was your guru. Exactly. Reality <laughs> was my guru. That's yeah, a good yeah. title for your next book, Reality. <laughs> yeah, very good. My guest today was Vidya Mala Birch. 
An interview with Vidyamala appears in the September-October issue of Spirituality and Health magazine, and you can learn more about her work at her website, breathworks-mindfulness.org.uk. Vidyamala, thank you very much for being with us on Essential Conversations. That's my absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Support for this week's edition of Essential Conversations is provided by best-selling author and master energy healer Carol Tuttle and Dressing Your Truth, the effortless makeover program that unveils the true beautiful you to the world. Experience your life-changing transformation at dressingyourtruth.com. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is a project of Spirituality and Health magazine. Visit spiritualityhealth.com and subscribe to the magazine in either print or digital formats and download the iTunes app for this podcast. Essential Conversations is produced by Corinne Johnston and our program coordinator is Alma Tassi. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. Life is hard, and sometimes you need a little help and guidance. I'm Laura West, host of a Guided Life podcast, and I believe that help is all around us. We just have to ask for it. The universe has a way of guiding us forward with the help of our past loved ones, angels, spirit guides, and ascended masters. On the podcast, I love to explore these ideas with incredible guests and let people know that they are never alone. Make sure you subscribe and follow so you can join me on this journey. Part of the mindbodyspirit.fm network and wherever you get your podcasts.